Welcome to the Region Free Gamers Podcast, Episode 6. Join us today as we talk about a small Japanese developer who's been making the best RPGs you've never heard of. Welcome back to the Region Free Gamers Podcast, Episode 6, the podcast that is fluent in gaming. I'm your host, Masa, and with me we have Paul, straight out of his game room. <laughs> yeah, my name's Paul, I like video games. <laughs> and Arnie, who still doesn't have a Switch. Uh, I hate video games, so I will not be getting a Switch. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, before we start discussing Nihon Falcom, um, Arnie, could you... Tell us, like, what have you been playing recently? Uh, so, in an effort to have a different game to talk about every single episode, uh, I stopped playing <laughs> Trails of Cold Steel 2, unfortunate <laughs> for this topic. Uh, but I started playing Yakuza Kiwami, uh, which I'm currently obsessed with. I think I've put, like, 25 hours into it in Holy. five days or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, It's been great. I, I, I honestly did not think I was going to get as into it as I did. And it's mostly been like the side stuff. Like the story is is fine, but I've been obsessed with like, you know, doing uh, you know, like little pocket like pocket car racing, slot car racing. I've been doing uh, a whole bunch of uh, uh, Fight Club. Oh, and I don't know if Masa ever mentioned this, but aside from all the porn stars and all that stuff, there's also this uh, card game, this collectible card game in Yakuza oh Kiwami. Called, oh, yeah, that uh, one. <laughs> Mesu King, which is a children's card game uh, which stars scantily clad women dressed as insects that fight each other. This this is, like, and, only and in Japan, the best thing about Yeah, and the best <laughs> thing about that is, like, um, you actually have a similar kind of game in um, Yakuza 0, but here is basically a rock, paper, scissors yeah. game. Uh, you, like, you, like, let's say you pick rock, and then, you know, your opponent picks whatever, and then they have this, like, wrestling scene. <laughs> That's like, based on like the Yeah, based on the outcome. <laughs> yeah. There's also, like, I just discovered this because there's host clubs where you can date one of two girls... And when you get uh, to their max affection rank, it suddenly cuts to like a live action video of the person who I'm assuming is supposed to represent that girl, just like laying on a bed and like <laughs> writhing around <laughs> awkwardly for but like yeah, maybe I mean, five yeah, minutes. Ki- yeah, I mean, Kiwami only has, uh, I think, only those two, but uh, yes. Yakuza Zero, you have, I don't know, is it like 20? That's that kind of scenes. Because yeah, I mean, basically, like every girl in that game that you meet, like through like side quests or you know the whole hostess club thing. I mean, these are all like Japanese porn stars, and they all have like that kind of video. <laughs> like if you you know like let's say you max out a hostess, you get a video. Uh, you complete a side quest, you get a video, and so on. That's insane to me. I was so taken aback when all of a sudden there was like a real person looking at me. I was like, wait a second, what the fuck? <laughs> but yeah, like... just wait until you play Yakuza 6 because like the like in the previous episode we were talking about the whole like the cam girl thing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, yeah, that that is live action. 
Yeah, I've seen clips of that. It looks amazing. It does. <laughs> uh, and but it no. is. <laughs> uh, but it's been, I mean, Masa's probably talked more about this series than anything else on this podcast. Uh, but <laughs> that, but true. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really good. I've, I've been really enjoying it. And I didn't realize, the reason I finally started playing it is because I didn't realize that Kiwami was just a remake of one um, until Ozzy told me a little bit ago. And so I was like, oh, I definitely have to play this now. So now I'm, I'm waiting on Kiwami 2. I have three. Um, and then I'm going to have to track down four or five and, and eventually get six. Uh, do you have zero? I do not have zero. Okay, um, so... And I need to get it because everybody says that that is probably the best one. Yeah, it is. And like you like you just said that you really enjoyed all the side content in Kiwami. Yeah. Like, dude, wait until you play zero because that... <laughs> like, wait comes to side content, like... <laughs> I mean, I would even go as far as to say that, like, no other game has, like, such amazing side content as Yakuza Zero. So that's why, um, like, if you go straight from, like, like what I did, like, I played Zero and then I went to Kiwami and I was like, yeah, these side quests aren't really as um, interesting as the ones in Zero. And yeah. It was a bit of a letdown, but I mean, of course, I understand it that uh, Zero is basically, like, the, the best game like they like they got the most out of it that out of that engine for that game yeah. but yeah i mean of course kiwami is still um i mean it is a remake of a game from 2006 so of course the side quests are a lot of them are just like um yeah go from point a to point b and beat yeah. up a bunch of bad guys <laughs> there's a lot more variety in um zero and also in six okay Admittedly, yeah. go to point A and point B and beat up a bunch of bad guys. I I think I could do that over and over and not really get too tired of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is that, and it's you know, it's it's at least for me, it's different, right? It's not like 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 a hero in like a fantasy world carrying a sword. It's just like you're just a dude and like grab this bicycle and like smash it over some guy's head. Like <laughs> that's different to me. Like whenever people talk about Earthbound being like, oh, you know, it's like an RPG, but like in the real world. And I'm like, this is like an RPG, but in the real world. I'm more likely <laughs> yeah, to like exactly. <laughs> get a bike smashed over my head than I am to like find a meteorite in my small mountain town. Like, <laughs> I think Earthbound was more a case of, you know, RPG set in the real world. But, you know, back in the mid 90s, that was a bit of, yeah. um, you know, a bit of a, a new thing. Whereas yeah. nowadays we've got, you know, we've got Yakuza and we've got Persona. Hmm. And even then before that, we had Shenmue and, and so on and so forth. I'm really just scratching yeah. the surface. There's probably tons of that kind of stuff out there. I guess what I'm trying to say is that Yakuza is the spiritual successor to Earthbound that we've always wanted. <laughs> I think I think that that is... I think that's what I'm trying to put out there in the world. I, so, mean, I mean, it is also the most violent <laughs> minigame collection ever. Exactly. <laughs> I can't wait for someone to draw a flowchart of, like, you know, the history of realistic, you know, Earth based video games and it's just like <laughs> earthbound and then a line and then yakuza yakuza yeah i mean it's gonna be like six like that whole six degrees um of, of separation Bacon. <laughs> yeah just one degree between earthbound and yakuza yeah exactly <laughs> yep that so yeah and... paul what have you been playing um i've been playing nino kuni 2 actually um and it's uh it's been you know what it's been really really good uh, it started off pretty slow, and 
you know, surprise, surprise, right? It's a JRPG. But like, <laughs> you know, the first eight or nine hours or so, I was like, eh, you know, I'm not too, not too sure about this game. I hope it gets better. And then all my hopes and dreams were answered. Um, the game really picks up after you start the kingdom building portion of it. I was it. about to ask how that was, because that yeah. seems like the most interesting new feature they added. Yeah, it, without a doubt. Without a doubt. It's, um, you know, it's got that, it's got that Clash of Clans feel to it, kind of. And mm. Clash of Clans isn't like the most perfect example, but it has that, it has that thing where you gather, um, you know, materials and money over a set period of real time, right? Okay. So your kingdom will produce, you know, 30,000 coins over half an hour. And so then you go do stuff in the game, and then you return to your kingdom half an hour later, and you have 30,000 coins. Then you build more stuff, and you can produce more coins faster, and then repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, right? Yeah. And that actually, using the words rinse, repeat, really does not do it justice. It's um, it's pretty addicting, mm-hmm. and it's it's just a lot of fun because you yeah. get all kinds of like in-game bonuses from all the buildings that you build, and okay. uh, and you get like more items with which you can craft other items and and so on and so forth. So like that whole kingdom building thing, it's not like you're just building it for the sake of aesthetics or something. You're, every time you research something new or you build a new building or you recruit someone to your town, you actually get more bonuses in the game. So it really helps out with the actual gameplay as well. And it makes you want to keep going and building new stuff. It's like, oh, I can't wait till I get this XP bonus thing. Oh, I can't wait till I get this treasure bonus thing or what have you. So yeah, it's really, you know, it's it's really cool there. And, uh, and I, I've mentioned this to you guys before. It's like, it's just a really pretty game. Like it's yeah. really nice to look at. Um, so you know, it's it's hard to argue with that. Um, you guys have not played it yet, correct? Uh, I've not no. even played the first one. Well, let me tell you, it as far as comparing it to the first one goes, there's hardly anything that's like there from the first one. The for like the actual world itself, there's maybe there's like one town slash kingdom that returns from the first game and even then it doesn't really bear any resemblance to it and uh and the combat's just been completely revamped which is actually a good thing because the combat in the first one was kind of eh um but the combat in this one is like i would call it sort of like a dumbed down final fantasy 15 um Maybe dumbed down is a little bit harsh. I would call it Final Fantasy XV, but with slightly dumber NPC characters and no warp strike. Um, let me tell you, whoever I've said this before, but whoever like developed or thought the idea for that warp strike, they need like the Nobel Prize for JRPGs <laughs> for Indeed. you know for 2017. Like that warp strike is friggin' awesome. Every time I see a game that has similar combat that doesn't have a warp strike, I'm like, this could be better. And it's not, because it doesn't have a warp strike. By the so. way, about Ninokuni 2, like, how's the difficulty level? Because, uh, like, the most common criticism that I've heard regarding the game is the difficulty level, how 
like the game is like let's say even I'm not sure if there's difficulty levels in that game, but like apparently it's like really easy, even if you are a bit uh, like a bit under leveled. Yeah, I'm not gonna argue with that. I haven't really had too many problems uh, beating bosses. Like, you know, it's one of those things where if you do, generally speaking, if you do a lot of side quests, then you'll never have an issue in most RPGs. Um, this game is no different. I think that if I had just plowed through without doing any side quests, then, you know, it might have been more difficult. But, you know, then you're just kind of playing it to finish it, which, you know what, that's also okay, right? Because an RPG, like, one of the main features is the story. And if you just want to get on with your life and see the story, that's perfectly fine. Um, but I've been doing a lot of the side quests, and thus most of the game has been has been pretty easy there are like other game modes like there's this kind of like real-time army skirmish mode like almost like an rts but not quite um i don't really have any other way to describe it other than that off the top of my head but you know it's an interesting little wrinkle it's not terrible and uh you know man let me tell you speaking of the side quests like the way you guys talk about the Yakuza side quests is making me so jealous because the side quests in... <laughs> no, for real. Because the side quests in Nino Kuni 2 are just like... They're very, very vanilla. And... Oh, it's like Final Fantasy fifteen. <laughs> yeah, not as bad. Like, Final... Okay, Final Fantasy fifteen. The main thing I remember about the side quests in Final Fantasy fifteen is that there was a side quest there was more than one where I was looking the frogs and stuff. exactly exactly <laughs> and I'm looking through tall grass looking for frogs and I was like this is aggressively unfun right like I don't know I don't know why they would include this that was the um, worst what's that that was the worst side quest in that entire game oh it was man I don't like I said I don't get it I don't understand why I was being punished for for playing that game I purchased it in good faith <laughs> um but like in Nino Kuni, it's like, you know, it's a lot of a lot of like, go talk to this person, you know, go fetch this, go kill this. But it's also like, it's a little bit weird because the main character in the game is the king of a kingdom, right? So like, there's this guy, like, for example, there's this guy who comes up to you and he's like, I'm trying to make these shoes for a friend of mine, but I'm missing this really cool thread hey, king of this kingdom, can you go get this thread for me? And I'm like, how on, how on earth is this realistic? Like, do, like, he's trying to save the world, not look for thread. I don't, I don't like get you, it. But like you, like, this sounds exactly like uh, Final Fantasy XV, because, I mean, yeah, you have the prince of a kingdom, and then he's, he's going on, on all these, like, fetch quests, like, getting tomatoes and stuff, and frogs. It's like, yeah, like, and really, I mean, like, I understand Like, these they're... guys are, like, trying to, you know, save the world, and they are just, like, I don't know, just picking tomatoes for, like, some, <laughs> you know, vendors at the, at the market. Like, like, how does this even make sense? Like, what See, the fuck? In yeah, Final like, Fantasy that's 15, the thing. Sorry, Arnie, um, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that in Final Fantasy 15, at least in the first like in the first half of the game, I think, it, it makes more sense to me because they're not actually trying to save the world. They're just on their way to this wedding and they're just like, oh, I'm going to fuck around for a little bit, you know, like help some people out, you know, sure. have a good time, whatever. 
um after when it when like all the world serious shit starts happening then it's like all right maybe we don't have time to to save all the chocobos in the world and you know (laughs) (laughs) collect some frogs yeah but yeah it's actually interesting i um read this one article or um like an opinion piece about like like let's say rpgs and side quests and it's like Okay, so, and Final Fantasy XV was one of the examples, and, like, the writer said that, basically, like, okay, so, yeah, you have this, like, the whole world is in peril, and, like, you have these guys on a, you know, on a mission to save the world, um, but, yeah, if you actually, like, take the canon story, then they, they don't really go on this side quest, they don't, you know, they don't do fishing or anything like that. They're yeah. just like following the main story. And I have noticed the same thing with like Yakuza. Uh, because there's been... For example, I've been playing Yakuza 6. And there was this one period where um, I'm like supposed to go from... Again, like from point A to point B to continue the story. But like that literally like if you take like real world hours or days. Like I mean that trip... That, that was like, I don't know, maybe 500 meters in real life. It took me like, I don't know, weeks because I did like <laughs> all, like like so much side content. Like I, you know, did like a million baseball matches and everything. So <laughs> it's just like, but but at the same time, I, I, I got to wonder in these games, like, um, like when does this stuff like take place? Like all the optional, like the side content? It's just that it's so like, it's so banal, like the the actual quest. At least as far as Nino Kuni is concerned, because like I think the difference is that Yakuza, at least they're interesting, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, there's the dominatrix who loses her mojo, and there's ridiculous chat roulette and other things that I'm kicking myself for not having seen yet because I haven't played that <laughs> game and it's driving me nuts. But like in in Nino Kuni, like you you know you talk to someone who wants to join your kingdom, join your city building thingamadoo. And she's like, yeah, I'd love to join your kingdom, but, you know, there's this deadly monster. Um, Maybe you can kill it, and then I can, you know, not have to protect these people anymore. And I'm like, again, you're you're the king. Like, (laughs) and, and she's just, like, throwing you under the bus. You know what I mean? Like, hey, why don't you go kill this thing? You might not make it back, and the world might not... You know what I mean? But, hey, at least I'll be able to join your kingdom and become, like, a bodyguard for a house or something like that. It's just, it's weird. I don't need you to guard me if I'm killing things that you can't kill. (laughs) I know. And and it happens like that multiple times. I'm not even kidding. And, you know, the other funny thing, too, is that, like, it's, man, it's, it's become, like, it's, it's just, I can predict it. I can see it coming a mile away now, right? Like, yeah. You see somebody, and it's just, it's the way the game has it set up. It's almost, it's almost a joke now because, like, you know, you, you scroll through, you press X and you scroll through the speech bubbles, right? And so you'll talk to someone and they're like, oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a great carpenter. Or, oh, I can make wicked weapons and so on. I'd love to join your kingdom. And then you press X, and then the next speech bubble is always, but I'm missing this thing, but my grandma's sick, but, and it's like, and it, dude, it's like every single time, every single time. Now I'm playing it and I see someone and they're like, I want to join your kingdom. I'm like, no, fuck you. I already know where this is going. 
you know? And then I press X and invariably it's like, oh, but my dog's missing. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Jesus. And I know it sounds like I'm complaining about it and but but like i mean ultimately i'm not the game is still really good i think i'm i think i'm about 30 hours and now i'm probably over halfway through oh wow and uh it's 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 nice man it's a cool game i've i've been enjoying it i i recommend it it's just more you know it's just kind of a more modern take on the formula brought on by the first one um it's missing a little bit of the ghibli charm that the first one had um also really strange like the uh the female characters they all have like i don't want to say they all have but like 80 percent of the women have like really large chests which <laughs> like if you're yeah, gonna it's turn definitely up... it's definitely a modern jrpg <laughs> <laughs> i'm right. saying right but it's it's strange because of the of the kind of uh childish of the, style like, storybook nature of the of the whole yeah. thing yeah. yeah, so it's like, <laughs> so like the fan service dial has gone from like a two to a six in this game, yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't really make any sense. That's not really why I'm playing it, and I don't think that's why anyone's playing it. So it's just a little bit strange that, you know, all the women are, are quite heavy set up top, um, a little bit distracting. I'm, sh- I'm sure they got a ton of complaints after the first game. <laughs> Listen, guys. <laughs> Not enough. This is a good game and everything, but I think I got something that's going to put you over the top. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's pretty much uh, that's pretty much it on my end. I mean, I've been playing more games, but that's uh, that's probably the most interesting one of them all. Um, Masa, I I have I have a feeling. Call me crazy. I have a feeling that you've been playing Yakuza Six. Indeed, and okay, so good news, <laughs> I finally beat the game, so maybe this, co- this will be, like, when we record the next episode, maybe I'm gonna have, like, another game to talk about, but yeah, I beat the game yesterday, and... We'll edit in a single party popper for your congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, holy crap, that was quite a wild ride, and, um, like, to be honest, I didn't really want the game to end, because um, I was... Like for the first time ever, I was actually like really um, nervous and worried about the ending. Mm. Like my girlfriend has this habit of um, like playing a game until the very end and then just dropping it because she's like, yeah, I don't want the game to end. Oh, and <laughs> she's not the only one, trust me. Yeah, but like the, for the first time, I was, I was like legit feeling that way. And that's why I actually ended up um, doing like almost everything in the game like i just kept grinding and grinding and grinding doing all the side side content and i actually like just today um a few hours ago i actually got the platinum trophy (laughs) for the game yeah so yeah i mean i did all the side quests i did um well not everything in that game um because in yakuza 6 actually it's where it comes to platinum trophies this is without doubt the easiest one out of the Yakuza games. Oh, really? Yeah, because um, Yakuza games also, like, not only that there's, I mean, there's the the PlayStation trophy system, but these games also have the in-game awards that you get. And I believe that in, in all the previous games, you actually have to complete... Like all these um, awards, which are you know related to like mini games, combat, um, 
you name it. Um, but here you actually like didn't have to do that. So I ended up getting the platinum trophy even without doing like. Um, well, I have done almost everything. I mean, of course, there's some mini game related things that I haven't completed. Mainly Mahjong, because I still don't know how to play that game. Oh my god. <laughs> but does anyone I... know how to play it? I, yeah, no, uh... Mahjong is not really moving the needle for me. No, yeah, exactly. I, I, I was planning on doing everything, and then I went into the Mahjong place, uh, and I was like, you know, how difficult can this really be? You know, a lot of times they, like, simplify a lot of these games for you know, stuff like this. And so I go into the instructions, like how to play. And it, like by page 20, I was like, you know what? I don't, I don't think I'm even going to play this game. Like there must've <laughs> been like 50 pages of instructions on different hands and strategies and how to play and what each piece means. And I was just like, no, I'm done. Yeah. The only reason why I even played marching, like, I mean, I tried it in uh, zero and here I was like, uh, there's a trophy for playing every mini game. So okay. today I actually tried it for the first time in um, six, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Like I'm <laughs> that that's the, that's one reason. Like I feel like I can do everything else. Like when it comes to comes to these in-game awards, I yeah. can do ev- everything else except this. Like there's no freaking way I'm gonna you know learn how to play mahjong just for this. <laughs> But then again, it's it's gonna be in uh, the future Yakuza games, and it's I, I think it, it it might actually be in every Yakuza game. So maybe I should just learn it um, for these games. Yeah, Kiwami um, also has a uh, also has Shogi, which I have not tried to play, and I'm also sure I will not learn to play. Um, so the problem there's is there's definitely... no like there's no value in it real life wise, right? Like I'm sure Shogi. If Persona 5 has taught us anything, it's that Shogi is wildly popular in Japan. Yes, absolutely. And so there must be no end of people to play with there. But, I mean, in North America, uh, I think people are just going to be like, uh, where's Battleship? (laughs) 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 But yeah, I actually like, okay, so maybe I lied a little bit when I said that I've only been playing Yakuza 6. Um... Like, technically, I have also been playing other games within Yakuza 6. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sweet. But, yeah, what's great about Yakuza 6 and most Yakuza games is that um, you actually get to go to these Sega arcades. And, yeah, I mean, they have arcade games. And what is, like, really freaking mind-blowing about Yakuza 6 is that you get to play, like, the full arcade versions. I mean, you do have... Um, Older games like Fantasy Zone, Outrun, Space Harrier, Super Hang-On. Oh, so but cool. You all, but you also have the full arcade versions of Virtua Fighter Five and Puyo Puyo. Holy, <laughs> ri- nice. holy man, yeah. Virtua Fighter Five. Yeah, and you and you don't even actually like once you you know play it, um, like in the game. Then you can actually like you don't even have to you know go to the arcade anymore. You can actually access. Um, through the menu, like when you you know start the game and stuff, and then I mean, yeah, you can even play against your friend, and it is the full arcade version. It's yeah, it, it is really mind blowing. That'd be awesome to be like, hey, do you want to play some Virtual Fighter Five? And they're like, sure. And then you just pop in Yakuza Six, and you're yeah. like, don't worry, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> but yeah, because when it comes to the um, the more retro games, um, Fantasy Zone. I mean, I've played it before. Uh, I think it was in Yakuza Zero, and 
that, that's definitely one game that I don't like. Uh, or maybe it's because I don't know how to play it, because I don't know, I just keep exploding and dying all the time. <laughs> it's definitely a, a different kind of shoot 'em up um, yeah. and a style that I wouldn't say has died over the years, but it's like it's constantly on life support. It's terminally ill, right? Like, I mean, as a general rule, as someone who plays a lot of shoot 'em ups, um, I'm not really a big fan of the one where you can change directions and scroll left yeah. or right. Yeah, um, I mean that. Yeah, I mean that really caught me off guard when I, when I started playing. I was like, wait, what am I exactly like supposed to do here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like fantasy almost zone, like an like, exploration shoot 'em up. It's a I little bit. I was gonna say. Yeah. Isn't it like objective based? Like basically, you have to destroy a certain amount of these specific things, and then the boss just shows up. Generally, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Then I mean, not really. You know, not really what I'm into. I th- I would assume not what most people are into. Like, I think Fantasy Zone relies a lot on nostalgia. Because, like, I remember playing it when I was a kid. And it's really, like, bright and colorful. And it has a very unique style. And so a lot of people have fond memories of it. Um, but nowadays, that kind of game just doesn't... You know, it, it still exists. Like there still are games like that that are made, but uh, you know they're they're few and far between compared to the conventional auto scrolling horizontal or vertical shoot 'em up. Yeah, out of the other arcade games. Um. Okay, so yeah, I'm sure that we all love Outrun. And sure. Yeah, and I mean the arcade version is amazing. Um, and I actually played uh played Super Hang On for the first time and. Yeah, I gotta say that game is also a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, I would say out of these like arcade games, in actually both here and in Yakuza Zero, Space Harrier, holy crap, that <laughs> game is oh my god! Like I like I I'm I'm so in love with that game nowadays. Like I never played back in the day, but um, I mean I played quite a bit like when I uh, was playing Yakuza Zero. And here again, I was like, oh my god, they have Space Harrier again? And to, to me, it was like even cooler than having, you know, Puyo Puyo and Virtual Fighter V. Um, yeah, Paul, I believe that you have, you probably like know more about Space Harrier. Um, Dude, yeah, you probably know games. all about it, but like, um, yeah, what is the best um, home console version of Space Harrier? Well, the problem is that I haven't played them all, right? Like I haven't played the um I haven't played the Turbo Graphics one and the uh like you could you could say that the best version is the one on the Genesis, but that's Space Harrier 2. It's kind of a different game. And there aren't that many home console versions. I would love to play the one that's in Yakuza 6 or Yakuza 0 cuz I think that's just a straight up arcade port and Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's supposed yeah. to be. And I never played the arcade one when I was a kid. Like, I was mostly familiar with the Master System version. And, dude, the Master System version was excellent. Like, I don't know how it is compared to the arcade, but as a standalone Master System game, probably one of my top three favorites. I actually um, I actually played through it again last year. And, like, it's, it's held up pretty well gameplay-wise. But as an adult... I have to assume that the people who made, like, who designed that game, not necessarily the programmers who designed, like, the style and the controls and stuff, but the artistic direction, 
that person must have just been on LSD the whole time. <laughs> Indeed. I'm, I'm serious because like you're getting attacked by giant hopping mushrooms and like, you know, modern looking mecha and Incan ruins like dude, like giant Incan faces are attacking you. And, and like Easter Island um, heads. Yeah, it's like, dude, Easter Island heads are literally attacking your character. I can, it, it must have been like a drug-induced design spree. <laughs> That's the only thing I can think of. And it's all like fluorescent yellows and pinks and oranges and, you know, like bright green and bright blue. It's just a crazy visual game. Like playing it like playing it last year on the master system i was like holy shit man as a kid i would have never noticed that but as an adult i mean like i legit think these people were on drugs when they were like this isn't just me <laughs> joking around like i legitimately think in the same way that you know musicians from every era you know composed all these songs supposedly when they were high you know I, i'm pretty sure that's what happened with space harrier too yeah and, um i actually Today, um, when I was doing research for this episode, I went to check out um, like the different console versions of Space Harrier, and yeah, I gotta say, say the Master System version is definitely not as good, at, at least like based on you know YouTube videos, it's not on the same level as as the arcade version. Oh, for sure. But um, but I have to say that the PC Engine or the Turbo Graphics version, like yeah, I mean that looks very impressive. I'll have to I'll have to look into it. It's one of those things where it's like there's only I, I generally don't like getting the same game twice and I never had Space Harrier for the Turbo Graphics when I was a kid, so I don't feel any particular need to to revisit it now. Revisit it to visit it now. Um but it's uh yeah, you know, I I think I might pick it up at some point for the Turbo Graphics just to try it. You know what I mean? In, in the same way that yeah, yeah. I have R-Type for the Master System, but I wouldn't mind trying R-Type on the Turbo Graphics too. Like I hear that that's probably the best version, you know, non-arcade, right? Yeah, yeah, must be. Yeah, a lot of these uh, arcade conversions on the Turbo Graphics seem to be, at least I think graphically, I don't know, gameplay-wise, uh, seem to look a lot better uh, on the Turbo Graphics. Um, and I don't know if that's just a, a result of like the hardware that's being pushed on the Turbo Graphics because I know it did some sort of weird trick uh, with its chipset and stuff like that. But at least from what I've seen, a lot of these um, arcade ports, when compared graphically to either you know the Super Nintendo, or I mean, I guess it wouldn't be the Super Nintendo, it'd be the NES, the Master System, and the Turbo Graphics. Is that right? Uh, yeah. I mean, the Turbo Graphics is technically, like, the, its contemporaries are the Genesis and the Super NES. Yeah. Um, in which case, I think that's more, I think that's less a Turbo Graphics thing and more just a hardware generational thing. Yeah. Where your 8-bit systems just could not replicate the arcade experience, and it was Absolutely. often very disappointing. But then when the 16-bit systems came along, it got a lot closer. I did. But then, I mean, I don't know. Some of the Turbo CD stuff is also like amazing looking, like oh, yeah. the stuff that they that they managed to like get away with, um, in that day and age with like you know what seemed to be what I I I I mean I can't imagine like not having lived through it, what like 
the ability to play games on on CDs like console games must have been like when they first announced something like that. Oh, uh, it was like it was like a bomb just got dropped on the industry. As far as as far as I was concerned, I mean, I live like I used to live in a I used to live in Toronto, right? So living in a larger city definitely allows more access to stuff, right? Yeah. So finding a TurboGrafx uh, CD system in Toronto you know, after a couple of years after it was released, because when it was first released, it was prohibitively expensive. But eventually yeah. you start finding used ones and, you know, eventually they start becoming more affordable. So, you know, for us, it was a little bit more common. And like, man, as soon as we started playing games on the TurboGrafx CD, it was like everything else just, I wouldn't say everything <laughs> else paled in comparison because I mean, Chrono Trigger's Chrono Trigger, right? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But that CD sound and having those anime cutscenes, like, man, like, level up. It was just, it was really hard to go back to other, you know, regular 16-bit chip tunes after that. Yeah. And I think I think we're going to get into some TurboGrafx CD talk in our topic today. Yeah, I think we might just do that. <laughs> And uh, I think at this point it's uh, finally time to move on to the main event of the evening, and that's Nihon Falcom. Oh my lord! But uh, yeah, but like I think before we start talking about the early history of the company, um, Paul, what like out of us three, you are definitely like the the true Falcom wit. So I want to know what was your first Falcom game? It's a uh... It's, you know, this this topic, Nihon Falcom, is like just about every other topic we've covered where once I actually delve deeper and look into it, it's more interesting than I expected. And when you look at the earlier titles, my first game was not Private Stripper, but I wish my <laughs> first game was Private Stripper. Because, <laughs> like, I saw that on the list and I was like... And it, it was funny, it, it was like... You know, JRPG, Dragon Slayer, dra- Private Stripper. Holy crap. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I was going through the list. I was like, Galactic War, Super Machong, Birdland, Computer, The Golf, Private Stripper? Wait, what? <laughs> Private <laughs> what Stripper this? episode coming soon, everybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but funnily enough, my the first game I played, and I mean, this is... It's it's so weird, man. The first game I played was Faxanadu for the NES, and uh, and that's a port of. I don't even think that's a port of a of a um, Falcom computer game per se, but. Um, yeah, it's actually um, like like what Falcom has always done is that they um, license out their uh, franchises to other companies, and Faxanadu also that was like my first game. I'm not sure if it really counts because i mean it's a falcon franchise but the game was developed by um i believe it was uh developed by hudson 
Yes. Uh, but yeah, that that was the first game for me as well. Yeah, I don't even I don't know if it counts either. That's why I was kind of hesitant to mention it. I was also yeah. hesitant to mention it because when I played it, I played it at a friend's house, and it's sort of like it's sort of like Zelda to the Adventure of Link in style, right? Or perhaps yeah, is, yeah. uh, perhaps Simon's Quest, and so. I was like, hey, let me see it, let me see it, let me see it. And then we popped it in and for like five minutes. And then my little friend was like, okay, let's play something two players. And then that was it. <laughs> and and for whatever reason, like I either never rented it or never had the opportunity to rent it. But it was always like, as a kid, Faxanadu was always like really, it was just fascinating looking. And, you know, like, the uh I don't know if you guys ever saw like the cover of it. It's just Faxanadu and there's like this crest and then it says and there's like a subtitle Daggers and Wing Boots, Monsters and Mantras <laughs> Await You. And as a kid I'm like, what's a wing boot? What is <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I and... mean I think the cover act like many mentioned um Link's uh Link's Adventure yeah, I mean, the cover is very, at least the um, Western cover, it is very Zelda-like. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so, you know, that was uh, that was definitely one that, um, that, like, was fascinating. But with that said, like, this is a very long answer to your question, Masa. Uh, the first Falcom game that I actually played was, uh, was East 1 and 2 for the TurboGrafx CD. By and, the way, uh, before you start talking about it... Um, yeah, because I won't shut up. Yeah, exactly. But, like, when did you um, figure out how the name of the series is actually pronounced? Oh, man. Like, in my 20s or something? <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, like to, be, like, to be honest, like, the first time I saw the name, I was like, Wise? Is that Wise? The correct yeah, pronunciation. I'm, I'm, actually, yeah. I'm actually joking. Um it, it you find out very early in the game because of the uh, because of the the red book audio. There's voiceovers, and so like there's the intro to the game, and one of the very first words that's uttered is "ease." the The narrator goes, "ease," the ideal <laughs> utopia, and then you know he starts going on and on. So you do find out pretty early. So yeah, what about you, Arnie? Uh, what was your first Falcom game? Uh, so, this is interesting. I'm not trying to preface uh, my answer or anything, but it's funny because, uh, like Paul, when I started really looking into this uh, topic a little bit, I sort of realized that even though Falcom is probably like one of the oldest and most storied like JRPG developers, and I I love RPGs. Um, I realized that I haven't really played that many Falcom games. It doesn't stand out to me at least in my gaming life, as much as, like, Atlas or Knees America or, you know, Xseed or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but like Paul, I also played East 1 and 2, but I played the DS version <laughs> because <laughs> because I suck and I did not own a TurboGrafx-16. Uh, so, yeah, it was the original East on DS, on the the DS remake, which I actually did enjoy a, a lot. That's good. I Yeah. I haven't played it myself but what I've heard is that it's not very good. So if it's, you went into it sight unseen and enjoyed yeah. it, then that probably, you know, that's that's definitely a plus compared to what I've heard. Yeah, I mean, 
you know, it was it. I I I'm a hundred percent sure that it benefited from the fact that I'd never played an East game before, and also from the fact that once you know what to do, it's probably like maybe a three four hour game. So it's not it's it, it's not a huge time commitment either way. Yeah. Um, you know, the, I think and I think I've talked to you about this. I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but. The biggest thing for me was just when I started playing it, like the combat system was something I'd never done before. And mm-hmm. so getting used to that was probably the biggest issue I had. But then once once I sort of settled into it, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't, you know, gra- like mind blowing, obviously, but it was definitely nice to see like the origins of one of the most storied like RPG franchises of all time. Yeah, um, absolutely. And it was, you know, it was a nice little story. I, I enjoyed playing it. Um, I don't really think that I that I grasped all of it like through my first playthrough because it was more so like you know in figuring out the the play mechanics and the battle system and all that stuff and what to do because it was a little bit obtuse at first. But overall, I enjoyed it. I'd probably play it again um, given the chance. Okay, so yeah, my first Falcom game. Um... Okay, so when I was doing research for this episode and I went through their um, catalog, I quickly realized that I... Um, it's it's much like what Arne said, like I'm a huge um, RPG fan as well. Uh, but when it comes to Falcon franchises, they mainly have like two major ones. And even out of those two major ones, uh, The Legend of Heroes has like only, you know, like it's only just now becoming like more well known. Yeah. Um, Easy is something that has been around for you know decades. Uh, but the thing is that it was never actually on the like the consoles that I I owned back in the day. And I mean, I had always heard the name, but I didn't really know what the games were like or what they were about. So I never played you know Ease games back in the nineties. Uh, so my actual like my first game ended up being Trails of Cold Steel, and the way I actually got into that game was that I was doing like I don't know, I think I was just hungry for another JRPG, and yeah. and then I actually like I was uh, browsing through this one like site, and they actually had a topic about the game, and I was like, The Legend of Heroes: Trails of Cold Steel. Well, yeah, that name sounds kind of interesting. Never heard of this series before. Uh, went to check it out, uh, watched a bunch of uh, review videos, and a lot of people actually made the connection between like Trails of Cold Steel and Persona. And if you may, like, I mean, you can sell basically anything to me, you know, just say it's like Persona, and I'm like, <laughs> sold! <laughs> Give me two copies! <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, and then I actually, like, yeah, ended up buying the game. Uh, I think it was like two two months after the European release um, and yeah it was like yeah quite an interesting experience but like we will get to that um, The Legend of Heroes games and Trails of Cold Steel specifically a bit later on yeah. but I think now it's time to talk about the early history of Falcom. Um, yeah like <laughs> we just went through a bunch of their uh, like earlier games including Private Stripper <laughs> <laughs> which I'm now very curious about. Uh, but I think the main reason why we and a lot of people aren't like really that familiar with um, the earlier games is that a lot of these games were actually like only released on um, PC. 
Yeah. And Japanese PCs at that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, nothing that we would nothing that we would have access to here. Yeah. And uh, and that's pretty much still their MO today is is PC yeah. first for the most pretty part, much. eh? Yeah, my yeah, PC I mean, eighty eight was at my friend's house most of the time, so I wasn't able to to play all yeah, my Falcom actually, games. Yeah, back it's in actually the interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's actually interesting how Neon Falcom like they are considered like one of the most influential Japanese RPG developers, especially like um, in the 80s. And it's like even even the biggest companies, like okay, so yeah, we know about Enix and um, Square, which both like went on to became like huge, massive, you know, companies. Yeah. And they released all these classic games, but Neon Falcom, I mean, they're still around, but they never really got that huge yeah um, well and it's and it's it's strange but it also makes sense to me um because obviously like you said square and enix were the other two big uh, jrpg powerhouses at the, at the time and they were really focused on console games so neon falcom i think just found their niche in the pc space which was probably being underserved at the time and it's weird because they've been around for so long but even like their entire game catalog fits on one Wikipedia page. Like, if you go to any other JRPG, like, developer slash publisher, they need their own Wikipedia site for, like, the hundreds of games they've probably put out. But Neil Falcom has just been... And I think that's probably the best thing about them is, you know, they don't pump out sequels, like, constantly. Um, but the games they do put out, for the most part, I feel like have usually met a certain quality standard... Um, that they're able to to you know hold themselves to again and again. Yeah, I I agree, and I think you hit the nail on the head there with their PC centric approach. Because the thing we have to keep in mind too is that the '80s and early '90s weren't like today. Today, there's a computer in virtually every home, but back then, not the case. Computers were still prohibitively expensive to own, and the user base for the Famicom for example, or the PC engine was probably way higher than it was for PC. So right off the bat, they're kind of limiting their reach and looking at that point to kind of license games, such as, for example, Faxana do, right? Um, but as far as developing directly for consoles, I mean, Masa, that didn't happen until, what, the PSP? Yeah, exactly. Um, they actually had a had this like very long period of mainly releasing games on on this like Japanese pieces um and okay i'm not sure like like from around like mid 90s when they they were still making games for super famicom but then there was a very long period uh where they mainly were releasing only pc games uh, some of these games did get ported over the consoles like playstation 1 um and then eventually the psp but yeah, here's actually an interesting quote about their approach um, to PC and, and why they actually like, ended up going with the PC. So this is a quote from uh, the, pres- like the current president, president of the company, Toshihiro Kondo. Um, As we continue developing for PC, our competitors started um, shifting over to consoles one after, after the other. Falcom itself had several opportunities over the years to make this um, shift themselves. 
We did develop a couple of titles on the PC engine, and some of our games were also released on the Super NES. Still, it just came down to the fact that PC games were easier for us to make. You didn't have to go through the first-party certification process on PC, and you could work on games literally until the very end, even if it meant begging the manufacturing plant to give you three more days. We had control over every part of the process. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it does, because we are talking about a very, very small company. I think even today, they only have like, what, like maybe 50 employees? Yep. Yeah, and I mean, especially with what we know of, like specifically Nintendo's policies back then of, you know, you had to sort of conform to their standards. They sort of controlled, you know, order numbers, how games would be shipped, you know, what what could and could not be in in, in their games. Um, so I, I think it was, I think it was very smart of them, at least in that respect, to sort of take control of their properties and, you know, keep them on PC. It was pretty brave of them to do that, especially in that, in that day and age. Yeah, like a lot of developers, from my understanding, really chafed under Nintendo's iron fist, but they also made a shit ton of money. Yeah. So, you know, they might have been a little bit annoyed with Nintendo's heavy handedness, but hey, they're making money, so. <laughs> but yeah, it is interesting how, um, I'm not sure if a lot of people know, know about this, but um, like in the West, uh, like let's say from the early 90s um, or maybe the mid 90s like the PC gaming started becoming like really prominent and like it really like blew up with games like Doom but in Japan it was like the opposite like it you know kept like it was popular in the 80s but then you know during the mid like when we got to the mid 90s and stuff then like it just like it basically got relegated to this like to all these like really cheap kind of like um, hentai games or you know these so-called ero games. Yeah. So they they were actually like not a whole lot of like legit um, like PC games being developed in Japan back in those days when um, Neon Falco was like still uh, really like supporting PC as a platform. Yeah. And I mean you know like we said before that that would make even more sense you know if they're the only ones if they're one of the few video game uh developers and publishers that are putting out high quality uh like extensive deep games on the system then anybody who actually has a pc who's interested in in something deeper than you know a hentai game is probably going to be buying Neon Falcon games because what else are you gonna get? You know, yeah, it's exactly, not like computers yeah. were cheap enough that you could be like, I'm gonna own a computer and also, you know, two three consoles. If yeah. you bought a computer, you're probably stuck with it. Um, and I don't mean that like like it was that terrible to have a computer, but you know, you there weren't a lot of options for you once you committed to to one thing. No, um, it definitely at least over there was a market that was like you said before, and underserved hmm. and. Uh, sure you know get in there and take advantage of that and maintain creative control yeah and i mean it probably also comes down to the kinds of games that were popular in each region right like obviously here in the west games like doom quake duke nukem like you know these are games that played better on pcs for a variety of reasons yeah. um not to mention the graphical advantages of playing on pc 
But, you know, RPGs, especially the RPGs of that time, which were largely turn-based, um, were very easy to put over on a console. The control scheme of a console did not really take anything away from being able to play those games. Uh, so it was, So I think it was just a matter of it's cheaper to own a console, it doesn't take up as much room, it's not, you know, something that you really have to mess with a whole lot. You just pop the game in and you can play uh, there's probably a bigger variety of games for your whole family. So let's get a console and we can still have our RPGs that everybody likes. Whereas in America, it's more like, you know, if you want to get the experience of something like Doom or Quake, you need to get a PC. And the consoles just don't, they don't do it justice. They're not, they're not advanced enough yet to be able to run games like this with the fidelity and just the smoothness of a PC. Uh, a stigma that is still you know something that exists to this day where you still yeah. have the people you know preaching the pc master race but at the same time it's really funny like we have been talking about falcom like they are basically like the opposite like their games have always been um like they aren't like very technically impressive they have never been uh well not okay so like let's say from the mid 90s um, until like these days, they have never been like one of the top um, game developers in Japan when it comes to yep. comes to graphics, for example. And like they don't like they, I don't think they have really like utilized the power of PC that much. No, yeah. no, like I think their MO as a company is gameplay first, fun first, and then all the other frills later. And you know, as much as graph good graphics improve a game experience. Like, if a game sucks and it has good graphics, you're not going to play it. But if a game is really well designed and the graphics are average, you know, you'll probably still play it. Like, you know, Dwarf Fortress, for example, on the PC. <laughs> like, there's tons of people. Minecraft, holy crap, right? Yeah, so absolutely. I think yeah. that's a perfectly... I certainly agree with that design philosophy. Yeah, there's actually um, I have a, have another um, Kondo quote about yeah this particular subject. It's like um, we can't compete with the big studios in terms of graphics and animation and so on, but we uh, what we can excel at getting all the details correct, polishing the gameplay, making a great story and a great soundtrack. The things that don't require as much money, we can stay in the hunt. That's the approach we have taken for the past three decades, and that's what our customer base expects from us. I'm sure it'll only get harder to keep that up, but it's become a vital weapon, I think, and it's something I don't think we can ever afford to Well, they have that 30 years of it behind them now, right? Mm -hmm. Like, when, you, when you've got a few decades worth of the same approach and the consumers have the same expectation for the kind of product you're going to put out, that's good. You know, that means stability going forward. So, I mean, yeah, especially for graphic design, staffs, you know, are getting bigger and bigger. Teams are getting bigger and bigger um, just to handle all the artistic design and programming specifically for graphics. But at least Falcom has that backbone, you know, yeah. where they just make good games. Yeah. And I mean, it also, you know, not having that much money also means... They don't pump out as many games or as many sequels to their franchises. They don't dilute their brand as much. So whenever a, a new Ease game does come out, you're like, I definitely need to get this. I don't know when the next one's going to come out. I know that it's going to be, you know, it's going to hold up to a certain quality standard that I'm used to. 
So, you know, I think in that way, uh, they're sort of, you know, they, they've, they've built their audience, right? Like people who, who play Neon Falcom games, who like Neon Falcom games, are watching for whenever their new game gets released, and they probably scoop it up right away. And as, as far as the graphics go, I think that the other advantage is, you know, they're doing a lot of JRPGs. It's a lot of anime stuff. It sort of tops out after a while, you know, when it's animation. They're not trying to go for photorealistic stuff. They're not trying to do Square Enix Final Fantasy 15 levels of of digitized 3D animation. It's mostly 2D stuff. Uh, if anything, the in-game graphics have gotten a little bit better, but not, you know, to a crazy degree. And I agree with him. I think, you know, put story, gameplay first, graphics will follow. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Um, <clears throat> by the way, do you guys know what is the best-selling, like still the best-selling Oh my god, is it Xanadu still? Uh, it's Private Stripper, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is actually Xanadu. It's crazy. Because Xanadu actually came out in 1989. I mean, excuse me, 85. And uh, it sold over 400,000 copies or like different... Um, like Japanese PC platforms because that means that they've never had a game that sold more than 400,000 copies which is insane to me oh that's crazy yeah it is yeah and I actually like I mean I wasn't really that familiar with the um, like the Dragon Slayer games Um, like the first one actually came out a year before and I did watch a video of that and like the first Dragon um, Slayer, it, it, I think it's considered like the first actual yeah. like action RPG. Yeah, I mean, I was watching a video and I was like, yeah, this actually reminds me a lot about Ease, except that it was just like more simple because this game came out in 84 and there was actually quite a big difference. Um, like, I'm not surprised that Xanadu, which is Dragon Slayer 2, was such a huge success in Japan because. It's very impressive for a game that came out in '85. Um, like compared to the like really early West Western PC games, or like let's say even console games. Like if you think about the the early NES games, like I mean these aren't very impressive, and they are most of those like black box black box um, games were just um, like yeah. simple arcade ports. And um, speaking of Xanadu, have you guys, Masa, when you were looking at all this stuff, did you see the did you see the cover art for Xanadu on the MSX? Yeah, like, I did. Isn't um, that amazing? Holy it's, crap! It's like this perfect. It's like it this is. perfect yeah, absolutely. relic of like anime style in the eighties. As soon as I saw that, I was like, man, I really want yeah, a poster is, yeah. of this. It is really cool. Yeah, it is. Um, and I mean, I'm a big fan of like old school anime style. Um, like video game uh, box cover art and like I mean there's a big difference between I mean like I understand that when you you know brought over all these Japanese games to the you know to Europe or the US um, of course like I understand that our taste is a bit different than the Japanese uh, like the you know Japanese taste in general when you know anime has always been a big thing over there and we are more used to the the thing that or at least we consider cartoons to be something that's yeah. aimed for kids. And yeah, I mean, and that's why a lot of these, like let's say NES games, they had like very different kind yeah, of Yeah, and art. it's it's one of those things where the the American and European publishers will be like, 
you know, well, we know our market and so on and so forth. I think uh, I, I've I used to like rail against this because when you look at cover art, I mean, we can cite Mega Man, for example, right? <laughs> Where, yeah, I know we start we start laughing immediately, <laughs> the right? The best one. <laughs> um, but I mean, maybe maybe they were right. Maybe they sold more Mega Man or Mega Man Two units um, because they, they had changed a 50 the year art. old man well, on the cover. What's that? Because they had a fifty-year-old man on the cover with a gun. Oh man, <laughs> I, I'm I'm trying. I I know I'm reaching here, but like I'm starting to wonder if maybe the people who didn't like the art are just like the loud vocal minority, and and maybe they were right, and maybe people did buy it because of the. Uh, I'll just shut up. I'm so wrong. Look, no. that I could the art in North America and Europe, mostly an abomination by comparison. Let's, yeah. let's just, I'm trying to, I'm trying to justify Absolutely. their decisions. Yeah, exactly. Like, to be honest, I don't think I would have ever played like Mega Man if I actually had seen the cover art. I just, you know, borrowed a loose yeah. copy yeah. from a friend. And I, and I believe I could be wrong. I could just be making this whole thing up. But my understanding is that at least the American box art for Mega Man, uh, the person who did it, I think was, uh, one of Capcom, um, one of Capcom USA's artists. He had not played the game. He had been given like a brief description of what it was and based the cover art on that. Um, oh my god, so, so loose. that yeah, I mean, and that's I'm sure that's that happened more than once for a lot of these really bad covers. Oh, absolutely. Um, but I think I think part of it is you know, and I agree with you, Paul. I definitely like. In like 80, 80 plus percent of cases, the American or European cover art is not great. I think a lot of it is, you know, I think when they started with the black box games, it was a lot better. You know, it was just like art from the game. Like, this is what this game looks like. Yeah. Um, but as they went on, they were sort of trying to be like, this is what it looks like in your imagination. Like, look at how <laughs> awesome this is, you know? And I think that's why a lot of the... Of the uh, covers that are fondly remembered are things that are just like completely abstract, like Legend of Zelda, uh, which is just like the crest, or something like Castlevania, where it's like very illustrative, very like not realistic, very well, like sort of like movie poster ish, yes, um, artwork. Not when you know you try to do the not something like Deadly Towers, where you try to do like the brawning muscle guy in front of the castle or whatever. Oh, you know dude, what I mean? Iron Sword. Yeah, exactly. Not the Fabio, Fabio covers. The cover. Oh my god. <laughs> but anyway, I think we're I think we're off on a tangent here. Yeah. your first ease game um like did you ever play ease one on no the you know system? man like the thing about you know the thing about being a kid is that you can't have every game you want right so 
I, I'm at this point where I'm at the video game store and I have a choice between East. I'd already played Fantasy Star at that point. Fantasy Star was the must have. And I've gone like two podcasts without mentioning it. So, <laughs> you know, we got to we got to fill those quotas here. Um, so, like, you know, we're at the store and it's time to get a new game because whatever reason. And, uh, you know, it's going to be one of the two or three games I get that year. So I got to get it right. And I've got Ease and I've got Golvelius for the Master oh. System and Ultima 4. And, you know, the choice ended up being Ultima 4. And hey, no regrets. Ultima 4 was like a very, very dense game and provided yeah. me with many hours of entertainment as a kid. Um, but that's ultimately what it came down to is that it's not that I didn't want to play East. The cover looked really good. It had that little thing on it that said adventure role playing. And, uh, <laughs> and I really wanted it. But uh, I did not get a taste of East until the Turbo CD. They should bring that back. They should like put on games like adventure role playing, action, shooter. <laughs> sometimes I buy. Yeah, back, sometimes back I look at the back so and yeah, I'm like, "What the I'm fuck like, is it's this?" Sports games. Keep it simple. Like keep it simple. Like instead of like NHL '99 or whatever, it's, it's <laughs> yeah, just exactly. ice hockey. <laughs> Golf. Well, that's, what's funny is that like on the master system in the top left corner like i just said they'd have the genre right yeah so that you'd have like great football and soup and i think it was super tennis and in the top corner it would say sports yeah and it's like oh that's what football is okay great thanks guys <laughs> but yeah i guess we probably next we should talk about um one of the biggest games, one of the most legendary um, Falcom games, um, is Book One and Two on the um, Turbo Graphics 16, or, or well, I guess uh, I it should only say came Turbo, out on the CD. Turbo CD. There was no, there yeah, was yeah, no exactly, cartridge yeah, or yeah. I guess card version of it. And thank goodness there wasn't. Yeah, okay. but like for. But, you know, for an unlucky European kid like me, like, we never even got any, like, we didn't get Turbo Graphics or Turbo CD, so I'm like, yeah, I, I, I basically know, I mean, I don't really know mu that much about the console anyway, yeah, so, that's, yeah. I, I wonder if that's, like, I wonder how much of a good or bad thing that actually is that you guys didn't have it, because the Turbo was, I wouldn't call it, it, it's about as close to a flop as you can get without actually calling it a flop, because, like, it did have a fairly large install base. It's a cult you know, hit. That's what's what that? We call it. It's what we call it a cult hit, Paul. Oh, nice. It's yeah, a cult yeah. following. It was a that cult sounds hit. very nice. Yeah. But, I mean, when you compare it to something like, like the Neo Geo Pocket Color, right? Yeah. Like, that was, like, super, super niche. And that you could potentially call a flop because its main competitor was the Game Boy, right? Absolutely. And, uh... And the Turbo Graphics has like dozens and dozens of games compared to like, you know, a couple dozen for the Neo Geo Pocket. That's just yeah. an example. Um, but not having it in Europe meant that you also had, you know, less of an opportunity to be disappointed by your choice and system, right? Because mm -hmm. if you're a kid in North America and you get a Turbo Graphics for Christmas and it's your first system, it becomes very quickly apparent that you're not getting you know you have a handful of really really good games mm. but the turbo has a lot of terrible like on the low end oh boy yeah. some really bad ones and uh a lot of the best games were on cd and that cd attachment for the turbo 
was really expensive. But was it Neo Geo expensive? Oh no, no, of course not. No, <laughs> <laughs> no nothing was uh, nothing was Neo Geo expensive. Neo Geo was like mortgage your house expensive. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Turbo CD like, was like work a couple summers, cut some lawns, like. Exactly, exactly. So like, it's it's one of these weird things that like, looking back now in hindsight, I'm happy that I had access to it. But if I was a 12-year-old kid and all I had was the Turbo Graphics, I'd be less impressed. You know, I, I was I was lucky because I was in a period of time where I could just continuously trade in games and systems and keep trying out new stuff. But, you know, not every kid may have had that opportunity. So at least in Europe, you guys had two very successful 16-bit systems and you couldn't go wrong either way. Either the Mega yeah, Drive exactly, yeah. or the the Super Nintendo, you were you know you were covered. You were doing well. Yeah. Yeah, but like I would say, um, <clears throat> okay. So for example, Eastbook One and Two on the Turbo CD, uh, I believe it was released was eighty nine or ninety in the US. Yeah, I think I think it was I think it was ninety. I, I could be wrong. Yeah. I think it was definitely eighty nine in Japan. Um, yeah. And yeah. It might have been it might have been ninety in the US. Yeah. And uh, I mean. I actually got the NES in 1990, so it, of course it was quite late. But then again, um, like we would always like es- in Europe in general, but especially in Finland, we would always get like every console, every game, um, at least a couple of years late. Yeah. So in retrospect, like I was playing Super Mario Brothers and a lot of these early like arcade ports back in 1990, and then like actually just last. Like this year, a um, couple of months ago, um, I played Eastbook One for the first time because it was available. Uh, well, uh, technically, it's still available on the V um, eShop. Yeah. But you can no longer add funds, so yeah, you, you basically can't get it if you you know don't have money already on the account. But like I played it uh, for the first time this year and. Oh my god. I was like like what the fuck like I was playing <laughs> Super Mario like and there's no hate. I I'm, yeah. I mean I love Super Mario Brothers and it's an amazing game but I was playing that in 1990 and then like some you know lucky motherfuckers you know <laughs> over in Japan or in the US were playing East one like and there's a just gigantic difference like I still can't believe it. Like I was still playing that game in 2018. I was still very impressed because first of all, you have animated cutscenes. Holy crap! Yep. Um, voice dialogue in 1990. Mind blowing. Like mind blowing. Exactly. <laughs> you know what's funny? Neon Falcom. They released East Origin. This is um, a prequel to you know East Book One. And um, I believe it was released in 2004 in Japan. And that game actually contains less voice acting than yeah. is one. That's pretty funny. Uh, but I but I would say, okay, so the graphics are mm, decent. Not, not Nothing mind-blowing. Yep, serviceable. But like, what is truly mind-blowing is the CD qual- quality audio. Yeah. It was. It's I very difficult still can't to go believe back. it that that was, you know, that there were games in 1990, 
with like CD quality audio. It, it was unbelievable. Like it, like there's just no other way to put it. When we first, it, it starts with the intro because the intro starts up, the music is really cool, and then somebody starts talking, and it's like holy shit. And at least for East, and it wasn't like this for every Turbo Graphics game. Hilariously so, by the way. But for East One and Two, they hired professional voice actors. And so the voiceovers were like, they were really good. It wasn't just the programmers' wives, you know, kind of doing the uh, kind of <laughs> it doing wasn't the voiceovers. just Kenji from accounting that they told to come down for like five minutes. Yeah, exactly. Here, read this. Read what's on this piece of paper. You got uh, one and take. And then, like the same person would voice like every character in the game. Oh my god! Yeah, that 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 must have definitely been a, a thing too. But you know, good voice acting, super clear audio, and that's and that's when it starts. And then you start the game and you leave the town, and the um, I think it's called First Step Towards War. The, uh, yeah, the first yeah. song that plays. Like, holy shit, man. Like, what a punch in the face that is. Like, it's it's so hard to go back to to regular 16-bit soundtracks after hearing that. Yeah, let, let alone, like, 8-bit soundtracks. Oh, my God. Not, like, forget it, right? Like, as a kid? Nah, there's, there's virtually no going back at that point. Yeah, that game was, that game was, like, a huge, huge leap forward. And also worth mentioning, East 1 and 2... Might have been the first, I think it might have been the first game I played that just kind of had like a little, a little hint of a dating sim in it. Because in East Book 2, you wake up and the village girl Lilia is like right above you. And she's like, are you okay? Are you okay? And then she's really sick. And then you find medicine for her. And then she kind of falls in love with you. But Adol doesn't talk. So he's not really able to reciprocate. But as a kid... Oh, I, yeah, I'm like, Adol, get in there. Come on, man. But, you know. So when the seeds that Persona 4 would eventually bloom into beautiful flowers. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta say, I gotta say, I haven't played the second game yet. I have played the first game. But you just told me on the second game. <laughs> I know, I need I'm to like, play I need to play this well. right now. <laughs> yeah, the, um, I mean, the second one and the first one are... They're they're one and the same, really. Like the first, it's it's a little bit weird in structure because the first game, half of the first game is Darm Tower, and then the second game is a little bit more evenly spread out between different levels with uh, with different music for each level and so on. Like the last level in East Two, uh, Solomon Shrine, is still huge, but. It's not it's not Darm Tower huge. Darm Tower is like it's gigantic, literally half the game. A little bit a little bit strange, but I, I thought it worked anyway. By the way, Paul, have you played East Origin yet? No, not yet. Not yet. You know, yeah, it's... that's Um Okay, so I actually played East Origin before East One and oh my god, that's that's definitely like a prequel done right. Because yeah, I mean they have all the music. Um they have no spoilers, but there's some. There might be some familiar faces. Yeah. Um. They have a lot of items, and yeah, I mean it's basically just Dom Tower, and that that's like the whole game. But still, like I remember when I started playing, and I you know had read about the game, and I was like, okay, so it just takes place in this tower. It's basically like a like an action RPG dungeon crawler. Like how interesting can it be? But like. 
Yeah, the story is actually very solid. Yeah, yeah, they uh, they managed. I haven't played East Origin, but from what I've read about it, and I've tried to avoid spoilers, and uh, successfully so. The very little that I know is that it's a prequel, and it all takes place in Darm Tower. And I mean, I have super super fond memories of playing. I mean, shit, I did it last year. I played through East One and Two again. East One and Two, man, like. That game just makes me smile, you know? Like, I play it, and I'm smiling the whole time. And I'm probably smiling the most in Darm Tower. Like, the the music that plays through it, you know, there's just something... There's something... And we can get to the bump combat now, too, I guess, because I mean, we, can, <laughs> we can talk about the music all day long, and that's going to get old. The bump combat, people kind of people laugh at it now, and you know, I can see why. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna argue too much. But there is something very elegant in its simplicity, and the fact that you just kind of never stop moving. I mean, you stop to regain health, which is kind of a staple in in games now, where you stand still and you regain health. But if you're not doing that, you're just running into dudes, and you, you never stop. And it's pretty cool. Like it gives it gives this sense of of like motion of things constantly happening right and in a on a level like darm tower where you're always backtracking to older rooms you know it's pretty cool like you get this item and then you go back to another room and adol's moving man he's booking it there's stuff to do we got to get to the top that's you know it's it's a pretty cool thing well and it's actually interesting how you mentioned that um like you only stop to regenerate health and how it's a stable in modern games, but if you think about it, it's more of a stable in uh, first-person shooters than anything. Like, not so much like... Okay, so we are talking about an action RPG. It doesn't really happen in action RPGs nowadays. But yeah, I mean, first-person shooters are all, are all about that nowadays. Yeah, they absolutely are. And, I don't know, was East the first game to do that? It might have been. Yeah, I actually, at least I can't think of like any earlier examples. No, yeah, I can't think of any the, either. Yeah, when it comes to the bump combat, I remember the first time I played the game. Well, yeah, I mean, of course I remember it since it was just like a couple of months ago. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I was on the couch and my girlfriend was next to me. And I mean, she's also a big fan of um, Falcom games, but more of the modern games. And... Uh, and I was like praising the combat systems in Falcom games. I was like, oh my god, like Tokyo Xanadu, like it's one of the most fun action RPGs ever. Um, you know, trails in the sky, trails of cold steel, like this might actually have my like my favorite um, turn-based battle system in, you know, all, all RPGs. And yeah, East 8 is really cool. And then I start playing East 1 and it's like, you just bump into enemies. <laughs> yeah. Like you don't even get to swing your sword, just bump into enemies. Even yep. the tallest building starts from a single brick, Masa. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> what I will say about the bump combat though, from what the little I played of it, is that like Paul said, you're always moving and I think it's deceptively simple in that you have to be paying attention. Like it's not like a, a, any other RPG where like especially turn-based ones where you just like you figure out what you're doing you just hit buttons until things die if you screw up and you move the wrong way or you turn your back on somebody they will kill you very quickly oh yeah 
Yeah, yeah, that it's that very, does happen. Like it's very it's so easy. Like yeah, if you hit the enemy at the wrong angle, then yeah, I mean you die really fucking fast in yeah. that game. Yeah. So I think, and that I think one adds to the tension of it, which you know, for a combat system that's this simple, it adds like another layer to it that's very interesting. But two, I think it also makes you as the protagonist very i think it makes you a little bit more wary and very nervous at least it did for me and i think it makes sense like this guy's just you know he's not a fucking hero like he's just a a dude yep so obviously like you know if he screws up these things are gonna murder him absolutely so I think man. It, it's very like it's very like not realistic but very like it's it's immersive in that way yeah it's like I, I mean, you're you're hitting you're hitting all the right notes there with the description. I, I think anybody who sees the videos and kind of and kind of laughs when they when they look it up, I, I would suggest you give it a shot. I mean, I would suggest you give it a shot regardless. Like the game, the game's a classic. Ah, man, I'm really the wrong guy to ask about this because like when I played it last year, like you know, for me there's there's the nostalgia goggles too, right? But if you're gonna like man, just to hear that audio, that soundtrack, goddamn, we uh, we need to move on. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I have to say, like, um, I mean, I was playing the game without the nostalgia goggles, and I was like, oh my god, I I don't like honestly, I don't remember the last time a game that's almost three decades old like actually blew me away, like Ease One. Yeah, like that game. I mean, it is truly something special. It's not just um, like we can talk about, you know, the best Master System, NES, Super Nintendo, um, Mega Drive, or Genesis games all day long. Uh, but a lot of them, like they, they were good games, but they weren't really like revolutionary. But I, I feel like Ease, yeah, that game was like so far ahead of its time. Yeah, for for when it was released, absolutely. But yeah, um, so, I think we should. Oh, I was just going to ask. Yeah. Uh, just for clarification, because I'm not versed in this. So, Ease One and Two are directly connected, and then every other game is a separate story. Or how does that work? Uh, correct. Yeah. Okay. East East One was originally a, re- a released on the PC88, I think. Yeah. And then East Two was the sequel, also released on the PC88, and then when they released it for the PC Engine, they just combined the two into one game. And then once that happened, that's how it was commonly repackaged. So once East 1 and 2 was released on the PC Engine, they never released East 1 or East 2 by itself ever again. Gotcha. Okay. And also, I believe that you have to... um, Like, you can go and play East 2 right away. You actually have to beat East 1 to get access to the sequel. Yeah, it wouldn't make sense otherwise, frankly. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, so have you guys... Well, I, I believe that Paul has at least played um, the later East games. Yeah, I've played, I've played I don't know, half of them or something. Um, I played East 3 on the Turbo CD. The which, Wanderers uh, from Ease? Pardon? Is that Wanderers from Ease? Correct, yeah, okay. also released on the Super Nintendo. Um, but I played the uh, the Turbo CD one. And it's it's kind of weird. I don't know what happened in that era where everybody took a sequel to an RPG or an overhead kind of action RPG and then made it a side-scroller. Um, but they did that with East 3 as well. 
And much like with Adventure of Link, even though it's kind of the black sheep of the franchise, still a really good game in its own right. And also with an excellent, excellent soundtrack. Um, I think it was Mieko Ishikawa who did the soundtrack to that one, and she might have done it by herself. It might not have been the full JDK team, because I think Yuzo Koshiro had left at that point. Um, but that East 3 soundtrack, man, you know, Falcom, they know what they're doing there. Um, <laughs> yeah, East, exactly. East 4, I played very briefly uh, for the PC Engine. That's another one that was actually released twice, and it was two different games. Um, East 4 Dawn of East for the PC Engine, and then East Mask of the Sun for the Super Famicom which I've never played. Um, yeah, so yeah, I think that was another example of um, Falcom licensing um, their franchises to other exactly. companies. Yeah, and there's the remake. I'm not sure which version of East 4 it is, but like the Vita remake, Memories of Celseta. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's the, I don't uh, remember. That's the remake Wait, of the yeah. PC Engine one. Okay. And then what's the other Vita one, the Ark of Nephilim? Is that also a remake? I think that's a PS2 game, and I yeah. think I think that one. Oh, I think you're right. Yeah, I think I think I am, and I unless I'm mistaken, I believe that one is a remake of the Super Famicom East 4, Mask of the Sun. Okay. Um, oh, I have to I have to look that up now. I feel yeah. I feel like I'm I have to say when it comes to the yeah when it comes to the E series, like um like one like when I started really like getting into it um. And I started doing research, and I was like, okay, so we have um, eight games, like, like let's say made uh, eight mainline games, and I was like, okay, so how am I going to play these games? And then, you know, I started looking it up, and I was like, holy crap, there's like so many remakes, yep. and it's insane. And I mean, I felt like so lost, I was like, yeah, I mean, what should I exactly like? play like i mean i got like for for example east one and two i mean i got it on steam uh and then i that that i haven't played yet but what i ended up playing was um yeah the turbo cd version on the v but there's like so many remakes remasters um and then it's also like really confusing how i believe was it east five that still has not been released in the west like the Super yeah. Famicom one? Yeah, I believe so. Although, from my understanding, East 5 is probably the worst one in the series. And yeah, I don't, so think, uh, heard, I don't yeah. think we're missing anything there. But yeah, I mean, there's like yeah, so many games. And uh, and and then, yeah, for example, like the... Um, like East 4. Yeah, you have Mask of the Sun and then The Dawn of East. And then you have the remake, Memories of Celseta. Uh, it's like, wait. Like, what should I be playing here? Yeah, I know, right? Uh, it's like, and then, I mean, you had E7, and then it's like Memories of Celseta, and then it's like E8. It's like, wait, like, like, how does this work? And E is the Oath of the Oath in Felgana. Oath in Felgana is the other yeah. one. Oath in, Oath in Felgana is a remake of E3. And uh, my understanding is that that one's also a really bad remake. Um, <laughs> and thanks to the power of the internet, uh, I've I now know that the Ark of Nephistum is, and unless I'm unless I'm really dumb and I'm not reading well, uh, and I'm sure our listeners will let me know if I'm if I am, um, that one's actually E6. 
They just never actually huh. called it E6. Well, would you look at that? Well, I mean, you know, that's that's pretty typical, though, for Falcom, right? Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Um, okay, we will get to the Legend of Heroes series a bit later, but that's another one um, that, when it comes to the numbering and the different Legend of Heroes um, series, it's, again, very confusing. Oh, it's bonkers. And then when you combine the whole, like, you know, when they port it over to English and then they change stuff around and... But like you said, we'll get we'll get to it later. Yeah, but now that we have gotten to the PSP era, um, like after the PC era, um, even like Falcom, like they they are still releasing um, PC games, and throughout the 2000s, they you know they released a lot of PC games, but they did um, start releasing games on PSP, and it was ma- basically because. Um, DS was more popular than the PSP, but um, yeah, I mean, obviously. Falcom just it's loves Nintendo, to release yeah. on not as popular systems. Yeah, yeah, so it seems. But like, Kondo, Although, I mean, Kondo actually, yeah. It should be noted that the PC Engine was like a really, really big deal in Japan. Like, yes. I think for a year or two, it was the number one system. Yeah, um, at least in America. It, correct. Yes, they're definitely yeah. like, wait for this new East game now on Xbox One. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and yeah, Kondo actually, like, I mean, his reasoning for the change was that, um, or the, like, why they ended up choosing PSP over the DS was that they were like, okay, so DS has a very different um, fan base and they believed, much like nowadays, like, they were one of the companies that, I mean, they have been supporting the PlayStation Vita until the very end. And now they have just, you know, moved on to like PS4 and they're still a bit like one of the few Japanese companies that is still like really hesitant about the Nintendo Switch. And that's like, we are not sure if the fan base is there. Like all these other companies in Japan, I mean, I really feel like um, Falcom is the last like well-known Japanese developer that like they aren't on the, you know, the Switch train quite yet yeah like all, all of these other companies are you know they are like yeah we have multiple switch games in development but falcom is still like mm, we are not sure if the fan base like if our fans are actually you know if they own a switch and it was the same thing they were like okay so psp like our fans like they had released um some for example east games already like on the um, ps2 and they believe that the fan base would you know like like these ps2 owners would also own a psp so it was like natural for them to uh, start releasing games and developing games for the psp and that's why we got a million east game games on the psp and also quite a few um the legend of heroes games on the system yeah i think that falcom must have like an amazing relationship with sony at this point i think that might be part of their hesitance to go anywhere else besides the ps4 ps vita yeah that would that would make sense to me anyhow yeah because even okay so we uh the switch is actually getting a falcom game soon like this summer um east 8 uh a port of east 8 and it's not by falcom um they actually got nis to do the port oh like i they, didn't know they that. once again yeah i mean they once again licensed a game to another company to release 
And yeah, I mean, I don't think, um, like, I, I'm sure that if other companies are willing to, like, bought over these games to the Switch, then, yeah, I mean, it's fine. Like, they, they are willing to, like, um, license the games, but, like, they probably aren't gonna, you know, start developing Switch games themselves anytime soon. Well, no, and and it's it's one thing for other developers like uh, Squaresoft or a Bandai Namco to start making Switch games. They have, you know, n- by comparison, nearly unlimited resources, if you're Falcom and you're a smaller boutique developer, it, it just makes more sense to stick with the PS4. Like the the install base is, is there. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, should we move on to the other big um, series? Like we have talked about E's quite a bit. So yeah. <laughs> I think it's time to move on to one, The Legend of Heroes. Here it is. We will move on to The Legend of Heroes. Just want to say one thing about E's 8. E's 8, fantastic. Um, really, I thought a triumphant return to form uh, for the series as a whole. I hadn't played E's 7. I heard E's 7 was pretty good. But East 8 really exceeded my expectations. Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing game. Um, and to me, it's definitely the best East game that I've played. I do understand the criticism from some like old school East fans. Like, I have seen comments um, from people who said that, okay, so if you think about the older East games, they are fairly short. Like, you can beat them in a few hours, in 10 hours. And they aren't very story heavy, but with Ease 8, uh, it it really feels like it was influenced by The Legend of Heroes. I agree with that 100%. Um, But one thing you can't complain about is the combat. The combat, like most Ease games, is silky smooth, super fun. I have all day for it. But yeah, The Legend of Heroes, um, this is once again where it gets a bit confusing, um, because... The Legend of Heroes, actually, it's a very old franchise. And it started as a sub-series of Dragon Slayer. And, and the first two games were actually uh, Dragon Slayer, The Legend of Heroes, and then Dragon Slayer, The Legend of Heroes 2. And uh, like to be honest, like I don't know much about those games. I actually and have Dragon Slayer, uh, Legend of Heroes, for the TurboGrafx CD. Um, I played that one way back, and it's actually one of the few games that I accidentally held on to because I sold a lot of my, you know, Turbo. I sold like way back when I sold my Turbo Duo, traded it in for something else, a bunch, got rid of a bunch of the games. But there were some games that I had lent out or I couldn't find. Uh, Dragon Slayer was one of them, so I actually still have my childhood copy of it. And uh, you know, to be honest with you, it's it is like super super typical Falcom game. You know, just good RPG, great music. I don't remember a hell of a lot about it. Um, it, it is exactly what it's supposed to be. And then in the uh, mid, mid to late 90s, we actually um, 
got the Legends of Heroes 3, 4 and 5. Um, and I believe that they were released on... Yeah, they were again um, PC games in Japan. But they did actually get released um, in the West. And the trilogy is actually called the um, Gog Harv trilogy. And the games are Prophecy of the Moonlight um, Wits, uh, A Tear of Vermilion, and Song of the Ocean. Um, these games I actually have not played, but they are considered The Legend of Heroes 3, 4, and 5. And I believe that they actually have n not much to do with the, the current um, storyline that is still going on in the, yeah. in the Legend of Heroes series. The main yeah, Legend I of think, Heroes uh, series. I think it's a self-contained trilogy. And funnily enough, I, I had no idea that these were brought over. I mean, I had, I had an inkling, right? Just because you see yeah. PSP games for sale once in a while. Yeah. But I didn't really know that I didn't really know that it was a trilogy that was that was brought over. I, I mean, I kind of wish I had known just just <laughs> because I like to know things. But uh, it's it's pretty interesting that these games were very, at least as far as I'm concerned, very quietly brought over and localized here. Yeah. And of course, they came out like very late um, after the original like Japanese releases because I'm you know checking it out and the first game was '96, the second game '99, and then. Um, Actually, no, 94, 96, 99, and Oof. then the, the Western PSP releases, 2006, 2005, and 2007. So they came out very late. What I have heard about the games is that they are actually quite good, but the localization is, uh, and the translation is not that great. Yeah, that, that, seems to be a, that seems to be a running theme with a lot of these Falcon <laughs> games, unfortunately. Um, yeah, e, e, yeah, like even if you talk about the modern games like East 8 and Tokyo Xanadu. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, much like you, Masa, I stopped playing East 8 once I realized that they were going to patch the, uh, that they were going to do a language patch for it. I was like, I don't know, seven to ten hours in or something like that. And I was like, okay, well, I'll put it down for a bit. Um, and I have yet to revisit it. I, I'm very curious to see how good that translation patch is. I mean, yeah, it should be quite good. Um, Arnie, have you played East 8? Uh, I have not. I've heard of it. It looks great, uh, but I have not had the chance to play it yet. Um, okay. And I just realized, as you were talking about it, that I do actually have one of the Legend of Heroes PSP games. I have uh, Trail of Vermilion. Is that what it's called? Uh, yeah, yeah. Tier yeah. of Vermilion. Tier yeah, of Vermilion. Um, I, I picked that up randomly at a flea market not that long ago, actually, uh, but I haven't been able to play it yet. Well, that's very interesting. Masa, do you remember, like, is that the first one or the second one? I think that's the second one. Yeah, that's the second one. Except oh, okay. that in... But what's weird is that, um, like, the re-releases um, on the PSP, um, that actually was the first one to be released. Yeah, yeah, the second game was the first one to be localized. Interesting. Uh, like, another, <laughs> another kind of Falcom oddity. Although yeah. from what I was from what I was reading, it seems like you could. It's more important to not play the third one first. The first two, the order is less important. So if like if Tier of Vermilion being kind of the second story but released first, if you play that one first, uh, you're not necessarily kind of you know spoiling yourself yeah. for uh, for the second one. 
you can still gotcha. enjoy it. But okay. uh, my understanding is if you if you have access to the third and not the first two, maybe just leave the third one on the shelf for a bit and uh, and get the first couple and go from there. Yeah. The the longer I look at at the way this like the Legend of Heroes series as a whole and all these sub series the way it breaks down, I can't help but draw parallels to Shin Megami Tensei. It's crazy yeah. to me how Yeah. It's sort of like there's an overarching series, but then there's just like a sub series that becomes like more popular than the overarching series, but there's multiple sub series. It's very like a it's a very like I think Japanese thing to make like sub series within a main series umbrella and have yeah, them have their own a, continuities and whatnot. As a country, they just must have so much free time to keep track of all these things. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I certainly don't. Yeah, but exactly. It's, it's you know like that's actually a really good parallel. Like I think uh, I think the Trails of Cold Steel and Persona parallels very well. Yeah, it definitely is like the sub series that took over the main series, sort of in in recognition at least. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, then we get to the, like, now that we are talking about the Trails of Cold Steel, we get to the, well, I would say one of the most ambitious, um, I would say, storylines in all in all RPGs ever. Yeah. Um, the, the current Legend of Heroes, which is about to be nine games long, and apparently, uh, according to um, Kondo, they are still like after they release um, Trails of Cold Steel Four. They are still like maybe seventy, maybe seventy to eighty percent done with this storyline. Jesus! Wow. Wait a minute. So is Trails part of the overarching? I thought Trails was just its own thing, like Persona. Uh, okay. So I'm gonna explain in a in a bit. Oh God. <laughs> um, but like like we are so used to like okay. So take Final Fantasy. You have 15 Final Fantasy games, okay? A couple of them are MMORPGs, but then most of these are like self-contained stories. The worlds, uh, like the stories, characters' worlds, they have nothing, absolutely like nothing in common. They are mm-hmm. just like Final Fantasy 15, Final Fantasy 7. Like there's nothing, you know, they, like if you rename those games, I mean, they could be like, uh, like their own, you know, series. Yeah. Um, yeah they just exactly. share like, Small elements like chocobos and moogles. Yeah, chocobos. And yeah, yeah. Uh, but like we are so used to like, okay, so there's a new Tales of game, a new Final Fantasy. It's like, yeah, I mean, the previous game has nothing to do with the new game, un- uh, unless they do like sequels. Like, yeah, I yeah. mean, you had Final Fantasy Ten, Two, Final Fantasy Thirteen, Two, and Lightning Returns, and so on. Yeah, I mean, it's insane that we actually have an RPG series, which is like, um. The current Trails arc started in 2006, actually no, 2004, uh, with Trails in the Sky, and we are now in 2018, and this main story is still not over. <laughs> that's, and, that's fantastic. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, of course, we have gotten all these games very late in the West. Like, for example, I mentioned Trails in the Sky, like the first game, 2004 in Japan, 2011 in, um, in the West. That's hilarious. And, yeah, and that—that <laughs> well, that I guess was I hope the, I don't die before they finish it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Jesus. And and that was the first game. Um, I, I, like they localized that, and uh, it was released on the PSP. But then um, the sequels 
actually they were only released on PC in 2015 and then 2017. I mean, as a fan who started, like, I mean, I started with Trails of Cold Steel, and holy crap, have I, have I been confused with these <laughs> games? No, I mean, yeah, it's like, it sounds okay, insane. Okay, so Arnie, yeah, yeah, you have played um, Trails of Cold Steel, yes. and I, I'm, I'm sure there's been moments um, where you have been like, okay, so th- they're talking about something really important. Yes. And then it happens off screen and you're like, uh, okay, so why didn't they show it? Like, like what's going on? Like, why didn't we actually go there in this game? Yep. And I've, and I've heard that, that it is addressed in other games. Yes. And to make things even worse is that, okay, so we have to trace in this guy trilogy. Um, which are all like really good games, yeah. um, and those take place in the same world as Cold Steel, correct? Yes, yes, they do. Uh, except that they take place um, a little bit before okay. the Trails of Cold Steel story arc. Um, but the problem here is that um, they actually we have the Trails in the Sky trilogy, then we have um, the Crossbell arc, which has um, Si- uh, Siro no Kiseki and then Aono Kiseki. Oh my god. Uh, You've lost me already. Released... Yeah, <laughs> I mean, they, like these games were released on the PSP and then they actually like um, released like enhanced ports for the PS Vita. But of course, these are only, you know, Japanese these are exclusive. Japan exclusive. They still haven't been localized. And then you play Trails of Cold Steel and yeah, a lot of the things that keep referenced are actually happening at the same time in these other games. I'll tell you one of my one of the moments where I realized that this was definitely a problem was when you finish Cold Steel 1 and then you start Cold Steel 2 and I I'm not going to spoil anything for you Paul just in case. Thank but you. there is a, a a segment when you start the second game, you can go there's an option in the main menu uh to see like character bios and see like recaps of stuff that happened in the first game uh i guess in case you bought this one and didn't play the first one and one of the things is like one of the chapters it said like the group travels to so and so um and i was like i don't remember ever doing that and so i listened (laughs) to the thing and i'm like I definitely did not do this. And so I looked it up because I was like, maybe I missed like a secret thing. Maybe it's like a New Game Plus thing. No, there's an audio drama in Japan where they have like this side story that, to be fair, is like not super relevant to either story. But they fight like one of the main bad guys during it. And it's like some some relevant stuff happens. And I'm like, well, that's nice that, that I listened that i went into this menu function even though i had no reason to because otherwise they just hit like they just hid like a bit of uh lore that is referenced in the game that's amazing that's that's (laughs) not even another video game like a japanese audio drama like something that i would absolutely never ever like find find on my own which is absolutely criminal because we all know that Americans are clamoring for those audio dramas. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, at least Exit, who have done a tremendous job when it comes to localizing these games, especially compared to um, like Axis uh, localized um, Tokyo Xanadu 
and then we had NIS America localizing East 8 and I mean it's a freaking typo city over there <laughs> but like Exit like they have done a great job and they actually did um, on the website like when Trails of Gold Steel 2 was released they um, actually shared a recap of that audio drama yeah. on the website oh yeah so they do they do they they do provide you a way to find out what happened but it's like it's so crazy to me that this whole thing was like not not its own game because it was just a short interlude but it's like it's so hidden like you have to really like if you want to get the full breadth of it you have to be like that super fan who's like i'm gonna get everything so here's the question then arnie when you found out about that did you did you feel like did you get that feeling that you get when you kind of like take a little bit of the time to explore something and you find a, a cool little nugget? Did you like did you did it make you feel good or did it make you feel annoyed that they released this audio drama and deprived the West of that audio drama that they desperately need? It it did make me feel good only because I was like thank God that I was like like, you know, for once, my, my fastidiousness and my, like, need to, like, look at everything <laughs> paid off. So it definitely yeah. made me feel good because I was like, oh, cool. I found this thing that's, like, a little hidden thing. Because, you know, it's not, like, plot relevant. Like, it's not like, you know, I, th- that would have annoyed me if it was, like, you know, a character died somewhere or, some, you know, something, like, real happened. Um, yeah. But it does get, like, they do make, like, throwaway reference to that event. Uh, during the game so I was like oh now I know see now I felt I felt like smart because I was like oh I know what you're talking about (laughs) (laughs) yeah there there is some value in that yeah but yeah one thing that um like we were talking about how it's quite amazing that okay so yeah first of all like we are talking about a very small company with around like 50 employees Mm. um but also uh, the thing about like Trails of Cold Steel is that okay when you play the two games that are you know like available for us Westerners, uh, like you quickly realize that there's a lot of padding, there's a lot of like filler content in those games. Yeah. But yeah, they actually like what happened was that they um, like originally they were supposed to be w- just one game, but then it was like well, I think we need two games, like we need to release something like next year. And then they actually like split the game in two. And like once you start playing uh, Trails of Cold Steel 2, it's like, okay, so if you're a, like if you really fall in love with the series, then it's really cool going back to these like familiar places. Like you revisit a lot of like the same places as in the first game. But I mean, of course, if you're a bit more cynical about it, then you're like, yeah, I mean, they did reuse a lot of assets from the first game. Mm-hmm. It was the opposite of Kill Bill. Yeah. They had too much movie they split into. This one, they were like, we don't have enough for two, so let's split it and fill it with stuff. Yeah. And that's why, um, like, I understand that a lot of people, like, they, you know, said that uh, Trails of Cold Steel has like serious like pacing issues and i mean even as a hardcore fan i have to agree yeah that um especially like the first half of the game like i remember when i was like first playing i actually played the first game in basic like two sessions like i got the game i played for i don't know for a few weeks i made it maybe like halfway through the game i was a bit like yeah like like what's the 
meaning of this game. <laughs> uh, as this is like one of the few games I, f- I feel like um, in a lot of video games in general, not just RPGs, but it, but it was like uh, there's a huge conflict. Like the game starts with a huge conflict, and then you actually like spend the entire game trying to solve that conflict and save the world. But here it's like there's like no conflict at at first, and then it kind of like starts building up. Mm-hmm. And at the you know beginning of the game, like everything is all like fine and dandy, you know, fucking unicorns and rainbows. <laughs> then you make it to the end of the game, and everything absolutely everything goes to hell, and you are like, what the fuck? Like this is like where the game actually like you know begins, and then you are like, I'm just dying to play the sequel. Um, the sequel, like I would say, when it comes to the pacing is- issues, it's it's better definitely. But yeah, there's definitely like some filler, and um, and I've I've also heard that Trails of Cold Steel 3, which came out in Japan uh, last year, um, and then yeah, Trails of Cold Steel 4, um, like it's the same case again. Like they basically had like one game, and they you know turned it to like into like two games. Yeah. I don't really mind that too much, like especially with your example from Trails of Cold Steel One, like I it to me that that kind of um, that shows confidence. You know what I mean? Like we know that we have this story arc we're going to tell, and we're going to take our time and develop the characters, and then at the end of the first one, things are going to go crazy, and the story is going to continue like that over the next three games, like. I think that's pretty cool. Like, you know, it it's sort of like the opposite of, like, let's say, for example, Star Wars, right? Like, you know, Star Wars gets released. It's its own self-contained movie story um, with, you know, a little bit of open-endedness in case they want to make sequels because they weren't sure if Star Wars was going to be successful or not, which, by the way, is hilarious in retrospect. And... But Trails, it's like, we know we're going to make these four games. We know that there's a story that we want to tell. So, you know, this is how we're going to do it. The first one is not going to be all action and so on. There's going to be a lot of development. And then we start moving it along. Yeah. And I and I yeah, will exactly. say, you know, at least for me, there's definitely pacing issues. But at least, it, at least when I was playing, it was all about the characters for me. You get introduced to this cast of characters right from the get-go you are sort of actively tasked with getting to know them. And so I was like, the story was interesting. I'm not trying to say that it was boring or anything, but the main thing that pushed me to keep playing was the characters. Like my whole reason for wanting to play the second game is I want to know what happened to these characters. Like interesting stuff does happen in the story, but the characters are really the thing that holds the game together for me. If I didn't have the investment in these characters, I probably would not have continued playing just for the story. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. So I think we probably, like, at this point, we should um, move on and talk about, like, what makes Falcom games special. And I'm going to start, and um, I actually have this part co-written by my girlfriend, <laughs> who who is also a huge Falcon fan, and she really loves. Um, she played through Tokyo Xanadu, and she's a huge Trails of Cold Steel fan. But like, yeah, let's see what she had to tell. Um, 
To me, what makes Falcom special is their lack of financial resources. When I put it like this, it might sound a bit negative, but let me explain my point. Many companies like Square Enix have enough budget to come out with amazing looking games that inch closer to reaching photo realism with every release. Falcom is unfortunately not one of them and playing games like Trails of Cold Steel 1 and 2 makes it painfully obvious. This game only came out a few years ago and already looks quite dated. They have gotten better as, as shown in games such as Tokyo Xanadu and Senno Kiseki 3, but what they lack in graphics they make up for in other areas such as storytelling and world building. With Falcom games, it's the story that pulls you in. From unexpected plot twists to heartwarming moments, Falcom games are a wild, wild ride. One might compare Falcom to Atlus in terms of how high quality the storylines both companies come up with are. To make it even better, Falcom characters aren't one-dimensional. Uh, they are overflowing with charm and, before you know it, you will find yourself falling for side characters as well. It might take a while to complete a series, but once all the pieces of the puzzle fall into place, it's totally worth it. Hard yeah. to disagree with that. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. No, and I, you know, and I completely agree. And I think, you know, especially after the condo quotes that you read, Falcom is definitely moving up in my like pantheon of of arcade developers. They're scrappy, um, and I think they know what they what they can do well, and that's what they push. They're not trying to sort of play catch up with everybody else. They have their own thing that they are very good at, and that's what sort of they go for every single time. Yep, and there's there's a lot to be said for that. And I mean, and to expand on that, for me personally, it's also it's also the fact that I I was that I I was familiar with them early, right? Yeah. Like a lot of the games that I played on Turbo CD were Falcom releases, and Falcom was a supporter of that format. So you know, for me, like the fact that they're still releasing these kind of games today is really nice. It takes me back to that time where there was this company that I never heard of making you know, really great games with unbelievable music. I mean, I mentioned Dragon Slayer earlier, good game, great music. That's, that's really it, right? Like if there's one yeah. thing I remember from that game, it's the music. And uh, whenever I think Falcom, and it's not just, it's not just good music. It's good video game music. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a difference. Final Fantasy 15 has good music. It's ambient and you both don't notice it and notice it at the same time. I don't yeah. really have a better way to describe it. It comes in when it's the needed moment. and it fades to the background when it's not. Exactly. Um, but it's not, it doesn't feel like video game music per se, at least the way we grew up with it. Yeah. Falcom, even though the quality of the audio engineering has increased, they're not using bleeps and bloops for samples. Um you know, it still feels like video game music. There is a battle theme. There's an overworld theme. It's really catchy. Every time I load up Trails of Cold Steel and I hear that intro playing and it's that little piano bit, you know, I, I always let it play a little bit before yeah. I press X to start the game. I do as you know, well. It's, it's <laughs> yeah, little, same here. Exactly, right? It's, it's little things. And uh, that definitely, you know, creates that Falcom feel to their games. Yeah. And uh, because I, I can't stop droning on. Um, one other thing 
that I think sets Falcom apart is attention to detail. I noticed this especially when playing Trails. I'm only about seven hours, six or seven hours into Trails. Yeah. So, you know, I, I have the rest of 2019 to finish it. <laughs> but, like, just walking around, you know, like, the world building and even the graphics, while not, you know, good, so to speak, you know, they're they're serviceable. There's... Like what they what they lack in polygon counts and texture quality, they make up for in little artistic details everywhere. In the backgrounds, flower pots, radios, you know, little little stuff like that. There's a lot of care put into the game. And when you see all that attention to detail, you can feel the love that the developers put into it. It sounds cheesy, but it's true. Yeah. I think this is going to be my my final controversial statement for this podcast. Oh I think boy. that Falcom is to video game developing developers what working designs was to video game publishing. I think that they neither one of them huge companies. I think they like you said Paul they put the attention to detail, they put in the like the love. They have you can tell there's passion for the work that they're doing and that comes through. And I think that's why people remember these games fondly i think that's why these series are still around absolutely and yeah i mean i gotta say about like falcom like really often um a lot of these companies of course like i know that falcom like they want to make money i mean of course they don't you know they aren't just making this for the love of video games <laughs> but still it's really refreshing to have a company like them who actually like they don't really care about like the current trends, um, like we talked about Trails of Cold Steel, and to me, it really, instead of like something innovative, like let's say Final Fantasy 15, which we have, you know, mentioned many times, um, like they aren't, you know, trying to push the genre forward, but it's main, like Trails of Cold Steel, it really feels like a golden era RPG, if the genre kind of like never evolved besides like the presentation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you can really feel like the love in their work. And like, it's like, I can like, when, a lot of times when I play video games, not just, you know, Square Enix, but like Nintendo or whatever, um, you can kind of like, when you play the games, you can kind of feel it like how the game was made behind the scenes and it was most likely made or like started out as like at, at some investor meeting and they're like yeah we need a <laughs> game like this we need to follow these trends trends yep. it needs to sell like this many copies but with falcom games it's like yeah i mean like these people they just want to make these games they want to tell tell the story of these characters and yeah i mean they don't care about like if the game sells i mean of course as long as they survive, but like the games, they don't need to sell a million copies. No, they they are well aware that you know you don't. The house doesn't build itself, so to speak, right? Like they they start from the bottom up. You know, we we make good games, and thus they will sell. And they might not be the newest, flashiest kind of thing, but we have our style. We do it well. And that's what's going to keep us afloat. And 30 years, they're not wrong yet. Exactly. And when it comes to music, I have to mention that um, for you guys who have Spotify, um, Neon Falcom is really creating a way that 
like most game companies, like they don't share their music on any streaming services. But I believe that almost the entire Falcom catalog, at least from from the early 90s up until all the latest games, it is on Spotify. That is awesome. Perfect. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Do you just search yeah, Neon we'll Falcom or it. do you search like the specific game name? Um, I think you can search for Falcom and also search for the games, but you have to remember that, for example, Trails of Cold Steel, it's not Trails of Cold Steel, you have to, you know, type in, like, Sen no Kiseki. Oh, you have to type Japanese in the Japanese name. name. Yeah, gotcha. but Ooh. I think you can find, like, if you just type in, like, Falcom or Nihon Falcom. Okay. I know what I'm doing for the rest of the day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> about to wrap wrap this episode up um but like do you have any like comments regarding like the future of falcom like they've been around for 30 years but let's say what about the next five years just keep doing what you're doing man it's worked so far you know maybe maybe put some games on the switch so masa doesn't have to go over there and bust some heads but uh (laughs) aside from that (laughs) Just keep doing what you're doing. Keep I uh, hopefully keep localizing because I need I need trails three and four. I can't. I I need I, to be able to finish that. Yeah, I, I for one cannot live without my audio dramas. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they should include those on like the PS4 releases for sure. <laughs> maybe they should. I, you know what? I'm gonna say they should probably do like maybe a PS4 like compilation. Like maybe updated. Like put like two or three old east games on on a disc or a couple of dragon slayer games something like that they actually yeah funny you should mention that they actually just released like this spring they released trails of coastal one and two um like ps4 remasters oh, that, in japan yeah yeah and also um the japanese version of uh trails of coastal 3 does have a recap um of like trails one and two okay Cool. Yeah, they should do like maybe the Trails in the Sky trilogy that was only on PSP and PC. Just put it out on PS4 or something. That's yeah, the exactly. one that I want to see. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's time to wrap it up. Um, but yeah, you can find us on Instagram. Our official base is simply Region Free Gamers. And also, you can find our um, previous episode and also this episode on iTunes and also on YouTube. And on YouTube, the channel is called The Game Strugglers. Uh, and also, you can find me on Instagram, and my handle is masajarvinen09. But yeah, Paul and Arnie, um, how can the listeners find, find you guys? Arnie, go ahead. Oh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you can find me at in, on Instagram at welcome to the game. It's the word welcome, the number two, the game. 
you know, just come DM, let's talk, uh, let's chat. Please like, share all this good stuff, all these episodes. If you like them, show them to your family, your friends, your dog, uh, the people at Neon Falcom. Send them, you know, the link. You know, just get it, just get it out there as as much as you can. Thanks, guys. Yeah, especially uh, especially your dog, because dogs leave really positive <laughs> comments. I find that they just never have anything bad to say. <laughs> and uh, you can find me on Instagram too, Paul's Game Room, Paul's underscore Game Room. And uh, yeah, just echoing what Arnie said, share, subscribe, do it. Write reviews. And also, yeah, um, Ozzy couldn't make it this time, but yeah, like we have to, you know, pimp him, him as well, or his Instagram account. But yeah, you can find Ozzy um, on Instagram, and his handle is Shadow of the Collector, and it's like Shadow dot uh, the dot. Um, wait, he's <laughs> got it? dots between every word. Yeah, exactly. yeah, Shadow of the Collector, <laughs> and it's dot between every word. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. But yeah, this has been the Region Free Gamers um, podcast episode 6 and thank you all for listening and if you enjoyed the episode please leave a comment and subscribe. See you guys. Thanks. So yeah, peace out. <laughs> <laughs>